listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Ross and I uh, am one of the pastors of Bethel and and most uh, Sundays get to be here on the South Campus and uh, teach and preach. And uh, so if you're uh, with us this morning, if you're visiting with us, we're, we're thrilled that you're here. We don't believe that you're here by accident in any way. Um, have we done blank books yet? No? Yes? No? No. On that side of the aisle, on the far end, sitting on the ground, is, a, is some black notebooks and... Uh, it's a, it's a great place if you're visiting to let us know you were here. We'd love to send you a note and say thanks for being here. It's also a place where uh, we can pray. We know how to pray for you. You can put your prayer requests there as pastors and elders. We pray about those um, every week. We pray with you. We pray for you. And so it's a, it's a great privilege for us to know how to pray for you. All right, so 1 Samuel chapter 18 and chapter 19. And Craig uh, did the reading for us this morning and read a portion of 18 and uh, most of chapter 19 for us. And this is, um, if you were looking for a a title of of what 18 and 19 show us, what we're going to see is we're going to see the absolute self-destruction of this man named Saul. So if you'll remember, we uh, talked about it several weeks ago when we began this series on the life of David, and we said that David is actually the second king of Israel. Saul is the first king anointed over Israel. Samuel is the prophet. He anoints, Sam, uh, he anoints Saul. Uh, the people of Israel were divided, and they wanted to be united under a king a human king, just like all the nations around them had. And so they cry out to the Lord, and Samuel, who's the prophet mediating for them, he he wasn't too keen on that, but God said, hey, look, if that's what they want, let them have it. uh, God provides Saul, they pick Saul, they anoint Saul, Saul becomes the king. And it is just a matter of a few chapters when we begin to see that Saul actually is like all the other kings around them. Saul's chief interest becomes Saul. There will be some moments, he he has the Spirit of God in the beginning, the Spirit of God rushes upon him, Saul does some wonderful things, he does well to unite the nations against their enemies, and yet at the end of the day he will not do what God asks him to do because Saul cares more about seeking to preserve himself then trust God. God will ask him to devote to destruction everything when they come upon some enemies. He allows his men to save some things, but most keenly he saves the king of those people. Saul takes him as a political prisoner. He does that because instead of devoting that king to destruction like God had told him to, and trusting God with the outcome, Saul decides, hey, listen, I'm going to keep this, keep this king. I'm going to hold him as a political hostage because it may serve me well later. It may be something I can use to my 
advantage. And Saul begins to scheme very early on in his kingship how he's going to cling to what he believes is all his. Last week we saw uh, there on the battlefield in the Valley of Elah. There the Philistines have come and there is a champion named Goliath. He has terrified the Israelites and most importantly he has terrified Saul. Saul's powerless to go up against the Philistines. He's powerless to go up against Goliath. God will send David, his newly anointed king, although Saul doesn't know it at this point, will send David as a boy to the battlefield to defeat the giant. And when he does, it, um, it strikes something on the inside of Saul that he is not able to get over. And in chapters 18 and 19, we will see Saul unravel from the top down. So I'm going to begin, if you've got your Bibles, I'm actually going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 18. I just want to look at that uh, quickly because it says this, as soon as they'd finished speaking uh, to to Saul, as soon as he'd finished speaking to Saul, this is David, um, the end of the battle, Saul brings him uh, into his presence and says, hey, tell me who your father is, tell me a little bit about you. So 18, chapter 18 picks up with the events just after the um, battlefield. And as soon as he'd finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan is the son of Saul. And it says this, that Jonathan loved him with his own soul. And then Saul took David that day and wouldn't let him return to his father's house. He's going to keep him close. He's going to keep him in his service. And then verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Then it says this, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set over him the men of war. This was good in the sight of all the people and also the good good in the sight of Saul's servants. It's giving us a little parenthetical. This is what ended up happening. He made David kind of the captain of his army, and everybody thought that that was good, and and because God was with David, he had success wherever he went. So David's defeated Goliath, he's debriefed with Saul, and the storyline then moves, and Jonathan, the son of Saul, and David are going to intersect here at the beginning of this chapter. And and, uh, at this moment, what happens is that this anointed shepherd boy, David, goes from absolute obscurity to notoriety. He, he's going to move. So, so this, this small group begins to form. And Jonathan shows up. He's the king's son. The writer, he's going to give us this glimpse of this relationship between Jonathan and David. We find out more detail later. But it, what we know from the very beginning, that it's a deep friendship, but it is also an unlikely friendship. So Jonathan, I mean, these guys couldn't be more different. Jonathan is the firstborn son of a king. David's the lastborn son of a farmer. And and so they come from different worlds. Jonathan would have spent his whole life being groomed for the kingship. 
before chapter 16, before what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, John, David would have spent his life preparing to scratch out a living with soil-stained hands and cheap-smelling clothes. That's, that was his life. But chapter 16, so it marks the change of David's destiny. Now we see David's status get changed. See, David has come back from the battlefield, and he is the Savior of Israel. A couple of weeks ago, we looked and we started the series, David was anointed by Samuel. The word anointed is the same word that we will find the word Messiah comes from. He'll be set aside, he will be marked, he will be the Savior, and in chapter 17, he actually saves. And the writer, he's going to give us this Saul's meltdown, if you will. But he includes these verses with Jonathan, I think, to shine a little greater light on what's going on with Saul. Listen to this. We should be more than a little bit surprised by Jonathan's character here. I mean, if you think about it, if anybody had reason to feel threatened by David, it would have been Jonathan. I mean, Jonathan, he's the heir uh, Jonathan's already led a successful battle against the Philistines. That happened a few chapters uh, before we even met David. And it would have been easy for Jonathan to absolutely resent all the attention that David was getting after his battle with Goliath. I mean, after all, Jonathan, he'd proven himself a slayer of many Philistines. I mean, in his own right. Well, Jonathan and David, are, they're peers. At least they were very near the same age. And even if there wasn't full-out jealousy, you would at least expect a little full-blown competition, right? I mean, but there's no hint of resentment. There's no hint of jealousy or, or competition. In fact, it's just the opposite. David's victory does not repel Jonathan. It, it does just the opposite. The text says this, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. It goes on, and, and he makes a covenant with David, which means he's saying to David, I'm fully and totally devoting myself to your good. And all of it is astonishing. In verse 1, the, the was knit, it, it gives us a clue how it's written, that God's Spirit is operating in the life of Jonathan. So unlike his father, Jonathan, he's yielding to God's work in his life. But the text goes even further. It's, just not, it's not just a covenant of devotion that he makes to, to David, but there's also this, this deference and submission that follows. Instead of Jonathan saying to David, David, look, man, that was, that was pretty great what you did with the Philistine out there. It was pretty good trick. In fact, I'd love for you to teach me, uh, you know, how, how, do you, how do you shoot rocks like that? I mean, that could come in handy. And David, when, when I'm king, I'm, I'm going to need some good men around me like you. And in fact, I'd, I'd love for you to be the captain of my military or, or, or the, the, the captain of my personal guard or, or, or my chief of staff or my chief counselor. D David, I, when I'm president, I want you to be vice president. But that's not the way Jonathan's thinking. 
See, when he sees David, he's not seeing a rival. He's not seeing someone to be used. He sees someone to defer to. He sees somebody to submit his life to. He sees someone to follow. When he sees David, you know what he sees? He sees a, a king. See, in, in verse 4, Jonathan's going to strip himself of the robe and the armor and the sword and the belt, and it's an act of setting aside his own kingly future and becoming another's servant. What he does is he sets aside his own kingship. I mean, he takes his robe off and he, and he hands his sword and his belt and his armor and all of his rights and all of his privilege and all of his will and all of his plans. And he clothes David as his king. Jonathan sets aside his own will and entrusts his future to David. One writer says it this way, that the, this deed on the part um, of Jonathan was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be the lesser. Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have over against the Christ, who is truly Israel's king. See, there's this contrast. Saul giving his armor to David and Jonathan giving his armor to David. If you remember last week we looked at David and Goliath, Saul wants David to wear his armor into battle. But there's this complete contrast here. Saul, he's wanting to clothe David because he wants everybody to think it's actually Saul out there on the battlefield. He is seeking to rob David and thereby robbing God of glory. And Jonathan, giving David his armor, is forfeiting his own glory. It's a sacrifice of submission, if you will. See, David's success is no threat to Jonathan. David's success is Jonathan's victory, not his demise, because his future isn't in his own hands anymore. He's, he's placed his life in David's hands. And so the, the writer has made sure we've seen this scene. How, how to respond to God's anointed before we see Saul absolutely lose his mind. Craig began reading in verse 6, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And they sang this song, all right? Verse 7, Saul is struck down as thousands, and David is ten thousands or tens of thousands. So we're not told if Saul knew about this act of devotion. We don't know if he knows what took place between Jonathan and David. The scene appears to be this private moment. So the writer picks up with this homecoming. Saul likely imagined, at least he'd longed for or he'd craved to be welcomed home as a, as a hero. I mean, after all, he's a king. It wouldn't be too much to expect a king's welcome. And, and there's this interesting 
turn of words in verse 6. David is returning. Well, they're all returning. But it says David's returning, yet the parade of women, they come out of the cities, they come out to meet Saul. And, and they're singing, and there's music, and there's joy, and it's this high praise and glory indeed. And Saul probably felt his heart swell with pride. <laughs> Look at that. All the women. singing and playing music and yeah that'll that'll work I mean, can you imagine it that's what makes verse 7 this colossal blow I mean this humiliating defeat the song in the mouth of the singers is a song about David in fact it's worse than that it's a song about David that elevates his glory above Saul. I mean, it's not that just David's going to be praised, it's that Saul is going to be humiliated. Saul struck down his thousands. <laughs> but David? David is tens of thousands. There's a lot of ways to sing praise about a hero who wins the day on the battlefield. I mean, there would have been a way for David to be praised and still keep Saul's pride intact. I mean, after all, Saul's still the commander, he's still the king, and ultimately, he's the protector of Israel. So if it's one of his soldiers that's the hero, I mean, he's still under Saul's command. I mean, Saul could have found a way to take the credit and feel proud of himself for his soldier's victory. I mean, kings do it all the time. But the song that the women sing leave no room for that. You know what it does? For, for Saul, as he hears those words sung, it exposes everything he knows to be true about himself and yet feared that those around him would find out. That they'd find out he's a fraud. He's an imposter. And his imposter syndrome is fatal. See, the esteem he craved, he was denied. The reality of his cowardice on the valley of Elah was being exposed. See, he's not the hero of the story. He's being outed as the failure that he is. That's why he's angry. In verse 8, he's angry, he's jealous, and although in reality, if you stop, put him on a therapist's couch, 200 bucks an hour, after several months, he'd be able to say, you know, probably I'm angry at myself. You say, well, that's great progress, Saul. But he's going to project it on David. I think Saul has two choices. I think there's, there's a road of humility or there's a road of humiliation. I mean, they're similar words, but their realities are chasms apart. See, humility would come along and say, you know, <laughs> David, 
taught us a great lesson today. The lesson of faith. Humility would be for Saul to say, you know, I, I was scared and I was paralyzed by my own weakness. I was consumed with fear and in the sight of, of, of a giant. Because of that, we, we were almost destroyed. But thanks be to God for David. Thanks be to God that He sent us a Savior, one who, one who had faith, one who, one who looked right past the fear and believed God was able. I mean, I realize today that, that it's not the crown on my head that makes the most important thing about being a king. There's faith on my knees. I was reminded today that Israel, they're not my people, they're God's people. God's faithful. I was tested and I failed, but God didn't fail. Because of that, we're safe. We're safe because of God's grace. God, thank you for sending another. That's a, that's a way to respond to the accolades of David. It puts words to what everyone's feeling. God sent a hero. Thank you, God, that you did that. That you saved us, not only from the Philistines. You saved us from ourselves. Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of humility is powerful. That kind of humility is strength, not weakness. I mean, it's strength. It's the polar opposite of humiliation. Humiliation, that's what Saul feels. It's, it's anger, it's jealousy, it's suspicion. He's threatened by David because for Saul, David's victory, it's not a blessing. It ends up being a curse. Saul is clinging in vain to hang on to what's not his and what is impossible for him to keep. I mean, if you think about it, Saul's struggle... More than with David and even more than with himself. His struggle is with God. Saul's battle is with God. I think that's why the writer, I mean, it moves in verse 10 to show us Saul is tormented by a harmful spirit. A harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, Saul and he raved. And this is within hours while David played the liar as he did by day, day by day. Saul's struggle displaced. There is a spear in his hand and it is aimed at David. See, what Saul may or may not fully realize is that God has taken his spirit away from him. In the Old Testament, the spirit came. It, 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 you find out in chapter 10, it rushed upon on Saul when he was anointed. God empowered him for this, um, this kingship that he stewarded to him. And yet Saul would not give God the glory. Saul would not relinquish the reality that he, he served as king under the true king. Saul tried to have it all himself. And because of that, God took his spirit away, his empowering spirit 
And Saul's now left with this harmful spirit that, that torments him. See, David has been God's blessing. Yet Saul wouldn't submit to God. So the very presence of David was a curse. One writer said this, faith is living without scheming. But Saul was better at scheming than trusting God. If Saul disobeyed God, he, he always had a ready excuse to get himself out of trouble. If people challenged his leadership, he'd figure out ways to eliminate them. And that's what Saul begins to do. Well, the story goes from sort of this tormented Saul, this angry, jealous, envious Saul, to full-blown, murderous Saul. Now, Saul knows, he's savvy enough to know that, listen, I, well, he took a spear and he, he tried to pin David to the wall. That is an attempted murder, number one. He'll actually do it again in chapter 19 and in chapter 20 as well. But he knows, he's smart enough to know that, hey, listen, if I kill David myself, everybody's going to turn on me. I, I, I can't kill David myself, but I will scheme for David's death. So here is what his plan is. It's going to be a series of seven murder attempts. For the rest of chapter 18 and into chapter 19. The first one is, is, of course, with the spear, and then it'll happen again in 19. The second one, though, he's going to try to do it by marriage. Now, this is the father-in-law of all father-in-laws right here, okay? He's got two daughters. The oldest is named Merib, and the, and the younger daughter, at least two daughters, maybe have more, is named Michael. So he says to David, because this was the deal, if you, if you beat the giant, you get the daughter, okay? So she surely must have been a prize. And and your, your family doesn't have to pay taxes. So now he's, he's going to make good on this. And so he says, hey, listen, here's the deal. You can have my daughter, but the bride price is you have to continue to be a valiant warrior. So go out and need you to defeat the Philistines again. And his thinking is, if I send David out, I mean, one day I was just lucky. I mean, if he goes out again, he's going to be, the Philistines are going to take care of this thing for me. So David does. He has success. He comes back. But Saul says, no, you can't have Merib. Uh, because I gave her to somebody else. But, but, you, but Michael, Michael's the daughter you can have. But here's the bride price for Michael, okay? I mean, ladies, this ought to melt your heart, the, the bride price here. Um, so there's, I don't know exactly how to say it, all right? Um, so he, Saul's going to try to get rid of David, and he requests this impossible task for the... For the, for the bride price. So one way to say it is to, re, to, to retrieve the intimate retrieval of valuable Philistine property. Can we say it that way? I mean, it's a bunch of foreskins. A hundred of them. I don't know where, where do you put them after that. I don't know. But that's the bride price. And so David, he, he goes out, he's successful. You know what? He didn't bring back 100. He brings back 200. So he's thwarted again. 
In chapter 19, verse 1, he holds this cabinet meeting, and he tells all his servants, Jonathan's there at the time, about his attempt that he, listen, he, he's going to kill David, or that they should kill David anyway. Well, what's interesting is that Jonathan is going to appeal to him right after that. In verse 5, uh, Craig read it for us this morning, for, for he took his... Uh, or beginning verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then would you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause. You know what Jonathan does? Jonathan actually comes along and he actually sings the right song. So Saul's killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Jonathan goes, no, wait a minute. It was God who brought the victory, Dad. He comes to his father with theological truth. God was in this. Your issue is not with David, it's with It's with God. And so what happens is, Saul will agree with an oath. Okay then, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Saul hears the truth, responds with these words of an oath. Okay, you're, you know what? You're right. As the Lord lives, He won't be put to death. But listen, here's, here's what we need to know so clearly from this text. It's not just from here. It's all through the Bible. Knowing truth is not enough to combat this envy and jealousy inside of Him. You must submit to the truth. It's, it's truth that must overwhelm you. That's your hope. It's not Saul going, well, you know, you're right. I I shouldn't be jealous anymore. You're right. That envy's wrong. You know, bad Saul, bad Saul. You know, never going to be envious again. But he's not willing to submit. The next assassination attempt happens at the home of David and Michael, verses 11 through 17. Uh, Messengers go to the house, and when you see messengers there, read mercenaries. Okay? So the the mercenaries go, they're going to seek to kill him while he's in his bed. Michael gets wind of it, and so she smuggles him out or tells him to leave, and uh, then she takes these idols, which is weird. All these red flags ought to be going up about Michael here, okay? We don't fully get the scene until later, but she got these eyes. Hey, don't, don't worry about it. I'll just put the idols in the bed, put some goat hair. Nobody will know. And, and then when she's finally confronted with it in verse 17, her story is, well, I didn't, I didn't do that, but David said he was going to kill me if I didn't. So, you know, there's Michael. 
she could be, have I talked about this yet? Uh, she could be on The Bachelor, okay? I mean, that's the... <laughs> My daughter was home for the holidays, and she brought moral corruption into her home. I know way more about that show than I ever will admit or wanted to know, but Michael, that's who, that's she, so anyways, um, so that's, that's those, and then in, in verses 18 through, so that was unsuccessful, then David flees, he goes, he, he goes to escape, he goes to be with Samuel, and um, mercenary, he says more mercenaries, and what happens this time, this is interesting, and I don't want us to, to miss it. David goes, he's with Samuel. Samuel has this like school or gathering of, of folks that are um, continuing to show their devotion to God. And God's Spirit is with that. I assume they're praying for Israel, they're upholding Israel in, in prayer. And so David goes, he flees to the protection of Samuel. Tell Samuel, look, Saul's, Saul's after me, and I've just barely escaped with my life, and he's probably coming again. And so he, he does. He sends these messengers after David to the presence of Samuel. But notice, when they get there, the text says um, in verse 19, then Saul sent the messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. The mercenaries are going to seize David. They end up presumably on their knees, along with this company of people prophesying, and they, they begin to prophesy. Now, this prophesying, this isn't just merely caught up in the moment. It's not like, you know, they, there was a guy in a guitar, and he was singing some praise songs, and they thought, man, this is really great, and all of a sudden, you know, it wasn't like a, it's not like it's camp moment, okay? Camp moments are great, but that's not this. This is more than that. This isn't human influence. It's God acting upon their mind and upon their will and upon their conscience with His truth. The truth, it overwhelms them. It compels them. It affects them. This, it doesn't come from the inside. It happened to them. It, it came upon them from the outside. And these messengers, these mercenaries, end up being worshipers of God in the midst of this. God overwhelms David's enemies. Well, in, in verse 21, that failed. Saul sends a second group to do the same thing, and the same thing happens. They're also overwhelmed by God. They, they're disarmed by God as well. And then in verses 22 to 24, I want to just look at this and I want to make some comments. 
So then he himself went. This is Saul. So, I mean, if you want something done, you, you, you got to write, you got to do it yourself, okay? So he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that's in uh, Sekou, and, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they're at Naviat in Ramah. And he went there to Naviat in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naviat in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all day and all night. Thus it said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Saul is overpowered by God. You remember at the beginning of 18, Jonathan in submission and deference to David. Because when he looked at David, he saw a king. You know what he did? Took off his robe. Undid his belt and his belt and his sword and gave him his armor. A sign of deference. He, he took off... What was, all, what was rightfully his bestowed it upon David. And Saul, in his envy and in his jealousy and in his, his absolute rage-filled mania is seeking to destroy David because all that David is threatens all that Saul wants to be and is trying to cling to. Yet in the end, it says somewhere, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. And the way that it is spoken, is Saul among the prophets? It's not a positive saying, it's, a, it's, it's one that says, Saul, what's Saul done here? He's, he's totally humiliated himself. In all of this. God was ripping out of Saul's hand. That which Saul was clinging so tightly to. Saul's envy, his jealousy, it systematically destroys him. He is desperately afraid of losing his significance. Of losing his treasure. I mean the, the things that give him meaning in his life, and, and when they were threatened, he stops at nothing to hang on to it. Envy and jealousy is this hunger that you simply cannot satisfy. I mean, the more you eat, the emptier you feel, and it forces you to continue over and over and over again. It's like this pain, and it won't be subsided. It persists, and it pounds on you till you're pushed to the point of no return. It's a terrible and harsh master. It's actually, it's, a, it's an evil monster. And the reality is, 
lives inside all of us. All of us. Weep with those who weep. Okay, I can do that. Rejoice with those who rejoice. See, to envy is to want something which belongs to another person. Jealousy defined as the fear that something which we possess will be taken away by another person. At the core of jealousy, at the core of envy, is this desperate desire to limit our losses and to guarantee our satisfactions. One writer said it this way, envy something in your heart, this is Dan Allender, envy something in your heart, when you see other people with success, other people having joy, other people getting things, it's, it just is a, a dagger into your heart. Envy is that which makes you think everybody else's situation's really about your situation. In envy, whatever's happening to other people's all about you. Envy and jealousy are symptoms of a desire to possess, and, and then that gets fueled by rage. We cannot bear the prospect of losing something we consider essential to our well-being, essential to our status, essential to our significance, essential to who we are trying desperately to be, or at least have everyone else believe that we are. The threat to those desires seem to threaten the quality of life, even life itself. Jealousy, envy, this desire to protect these beloved things we think we possess. Or, or to acquire or, or repossess this this apple of our eye, this treasure of treasures. And yet what happens is we find ourselves increasingly angry, increasingly furious, increasingly destructive. One other thing Allender says, he says, the irony of these dark desires, they actually destroy what we want. Envy and jealousy takes whatever happens to other people, makes it about us. Envy says, I deserve better than what I have. Jealousy, envy, looks at whatever somebody else has and makes you feel entitled to it. Envy, jealousy will, will never allow you to enjoy someone else's happiness or success. Envy and jealousy will distort reality and become completely consuming. Here's the caution this morning. You say, well, I, I'm not envious. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not jealous. I mean, look at me. What do I have to be jealous of? Anything you make more important than God, anything you make more important than God, you will never be able to get enough of. If it's security, if it's money, if it's esteem, you'll never get enough of it. 
Tim Keller writes about this. Listen to what he has to say. I think he's good. Those things that become more important than God in our life become an addictive substance. Become something that makes you high and yet so controls you that you have to have more of it and more of it and more of it. In the end, here's the classic cycle. You destroy the very thing that you feel like you need the most. You can't stop yourself. By the end, you don't care anymore. That That's an addict. You want to be in charge? And yet the very thing, the very thing, anything you make, number one in your life besides God, ends up destroying the very thing. In a sense, destroying itself. If you make your spouse more important than anything else, or the having of a spouse, your emotional dependence will drive your spouse away. There it is. If you make your children the most important thing in your life, you'll abuse them or try to live your life through them. You'll drive them away. There it is. If you need approval from people, if you want friends so desperately, it's two things. First, if it's more important than anything else that people like you and have, you have some friends, if, if friends are the thing in, in your life, first, you'll never tell them the truth. You'll try to be something to please them. You won't tell them the truth. You'll hide from them. You'll tell them what you think they want, and you'll never confront them, never. Secondly, any criticism from them will devastate you. And as a result, you won't have any friends. If you want to be a king more than anything else, if you want money more than anything else, in fact, the psalmist will say, your steadfast love is better than life. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. In other words, if you thirst after blessedness, you get neither blessedness nor righteousness. If you thirst after righteousness, it's mean to to be right with God. If you thirst after righteousness more than blessedness, you get both. See, Saul systematically destroys his life, trying to cling to that which he thinks he so desperately needs. So what do you do about this malady of the heart? What do you do with these feelings of envy and jealousy? Because it's not enough to just walk out of here and go, you know what, I need to just make a list of the things I'm envious of or jealous of, and I need to not do those things anymore. It's got to be more than that. I mean, it, the truth may set you free on the one hand, but truth in and of itself only makes you aware. Consider Jonathan for a moment. On the one hand, I think we look at God's anointed one. I mean, we look to Jesus. We have to say, look, God, I, I, I see, I, I receive. I mean, that, that's my salvation. Jesus is my hope. If I'm going to have life, I have to get off the throne of my own life. I, I, it's believing you, but, but I can't 
try to imitate Jesus. I, I can't necessarily, in my own strength, try to be like Jesus. I've got to give my life to Jesus. I take off my robes, I take off my sword. He's the King, He's the Lord of my life. See, the, the more that Paul, Saul, held on to power over himself, the more he tried to be the king, he became less of a king. Jonathan gave up that right. Gave up his kingship. You know what? He became more of a king. The less he tried to hold on to his royalty and to his rights, the more he got. And that's freedom. That kind of freedom, that kind of freedom that says, you know what? I am not on the throne of my life. It sucks all the air out of envy and jealousy and selfish ambition and fury and rage and bitterness. Paul will say in Romans 12, make yourself a living sacrifice. It's reasonable Service. That the one who, who came, gave himself utterly for you, you turn and give your life utterly to him. It is in surrendering that you find the satisfaction you long for. But what motivates us to that? I think there's even something more. Consider Jonathan again. Think about it this way. When, when Jonathan's there, and it's a scene before the unraveling of Saul, and he takes off his robe, and he takes off his sword, and, and he makes himself, in one sense, this very vulnerable to David, to this one he loves. So that David can sit on the throne. You know, the reality is, there's a greater... Jonathan. There's this ultimate Jonathan. There's, there's another. I mean, he comes as a friend. He knits his soul to yours. He, he loves you. You know, he comes and makes covenant with you. He also had royal rights. He also wore his crown. But the only way he could give the ones he loved a throne was to for a while lose it himself. To give it. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who is God, and all the rights of it, shared the throne, eternal throne of the universe with the Father, comes and empties Himself. He becomes vulnerable. In fact, He becomes like us so that He can be killed for us. To die for us. Comes and gives the human race. Comes to give you. Comes to his robe and his sword. And he's killed. He doesn't just. He doesn't just give the sword. He, he experiences it. In his death. John 17. The night before Jesus died. John records that Jesus prays. 
praying to the Father. He's praying for the disciples. He's praying for all the believers that would come after. In one sense, I've, I've set aside my glory in this moment. And Father, in my death, you know, be, be glorified so that they, they become partakers of the glory that I've always known, that you and I have always shared. Bring them into that. As I set my glory aside and take on their death. See, if you want to be changed, here's how you do it. You look to the, the ultimate friend, the, the greatest friend your soul has ever had or ever will have from heaven. Sends his soul. He bound up his heart with you, with me. We became his treasure. Stripped off his robe, stripped off his sword. And he died our death. And you hear him say, Father, I don't, I don't want to be the only son of God in the universe. And the only way to pay their debt, the only way for them to, to reign with us, to be seated with us, the only way for them to be raised up for me to be struck down. The only way for them to reign is if I lose. So I will. And when you consider what Jesus gave up to bring you to Him, see, that has the power to change your heart. That has the power to melt your heart. That has the power to suck all the oxygen out of your selfish ambition and desire and jealousy and bitterness and clinging. And you realize how what He did changes everything. So maybe some of you are sitting here this morning. It's the first time you've ever thought or considered, you know what, I'm, I'm trying to sit on the throne of my life. I'm, it's not my throne. And you bow before the one whose throne it is belongs to the true king. And all I'm clinging to and all I'm afraid to lose, you, you hand that over. You, you give it up to the, to the king, to Jesus, your savior, your friend, the one that loves you. If you've never done that, you can do that right now, right in this moment. Let us, let us pray together. Father, I do pray this morning.